All right, here we go. Test one, two. We've talked a lot about luck and curses in past episodes of this podcast. We've discussed mythology and how stories can change and get bigger as they're passed down from generation to generation. I've also made mention of my love for music. Between being raised on rock and roll by my father, working in radio, attending hundreds of concerts in my teens and early 20s, and my need for music in the background of literally my entire day, music is in my soul. So I thought that we'd take a look at some of the biggest reported music-related curses and cursed musicians. Research has led me to finding a plethora of stories, so I'll break this down into a two-parter. I'll apologize up front for my voice and the fact that I've been slow to get to episode 41. Working in a school has given me many gifts, none of which are financial, but that's fine. The most recent gift I was given was COVID. Which variant? I don't know, but whichever variant I got, it's been a doozy. It's been seven days since I tested positive, and I was prescribed steroids and an inhaler yesterday, because this bad boy is not going away on its own. That reminds me, hold on. For anyone who calls COVID just a bad cold or allergies, please shush. You'd think a week off of work would be awesome. You'd think I'd have hours and hours of free time to work on this podcast. You'd be wrong. Anything more active than laying in bed makes me feel like I ran a marathon. I'm not looking for sympathy. This is more just a public service announcement that COVID isn't gone. And to be careful out there. Apophenia is described as the tendency to perceive meaningful connections between unrelated things. The word was coined by psychiatrist Klaus Conrad in his 1958 publication on the beginning stages of schizophrenia. He defined it as unmotivated seeing of connections accompanied by a specific feeling of abnormal meaningfulness. He described the early stages of delusional thought as self-referential overinterpretations of actual sensory perceptions, as opposed to hallucinations. It's about our desire to seek patterns in random things, to find an explanation into things we don't fully understand. Let us begin the first half of our journey into hoodoo and hexes with a music twist. Episode 41, Musical Maledictions, Part 1. Number 10, John Lennon. I remember back on September the 9th of 2009, the remastered Beatles catalog was released along with the Beatles rock band video game, which I played the heck out of while I was supposed to be taking care of my newborn daughter. Why did they choose 9909? For John Lennon, of course. Three big songs written by John Lennon included the number 9, Revolution 9, One After 909, and Number 9 Dream. Revolution 9 was part of what's known as the White Album, the ninth album released in the UK. Revolution 9 featured a series of tape loops, most memorably that of a man repeating, Number 9, Number 9. John Lennon felt that the number 9 was his lucky number for much of his life, 
but the number began showing up in all sorts of places seemingly following him. Many of these may be coincidences, but the number pops up enough times throughout his life that diehard Beatles fans believe there's more to it. Lennon was born on Wednesday, October 9, 1940. His childhood home was 9 Newcastle Road in Wavertree, Liverpool. The street, the district, and the city are all names with nine letters. The house on Newcastle Road was his grandfather's home, and it's where he later wrote One After 909. When John Lennon attended Liverpool Art College, he and his friend Stuart Sutcliffe would take bus number 72. 7 plus 2 is 9, and the number 72 is divisible by 9. After meeting Paul McCartney, he now had two friends with surnames containing nine letters. The Beatles officially formed in 1960. Lennon left the band nine years later in 1969. The Beatles' first live show was at the Cavern Club in February of 1961. On the 9th, the Beatles' future manager Brian Epstein first saw them perform together on November 9th of 1961. They signed their contract with EMI on May 9th of 1962. The Beatles' historic, record-breaking debut appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show was on February 9, 1964. Lennon claims to have met Yoko Ono on November 9, 1966. In 1969, he changed his name to John Ono Lennon. There are nine O's combined in the names of John Ono Lennon and Yoko Ono Lennon. The couple lived together in an apartment on West 72nd Street, New York City. Their first apartment in the Dakota building was number 72. Sean Lennon was born on October 9, 1975, which was John's 35th birthday. Number 9 Dream was on the 1974 album Walls and Bridges, which was Lennon's ninth album post-Beatles. He released it in September, the ninth month. On the album's cover, there's a drawing featuring a soccer player wearing the number 9. When released as a single, number 9 Dream peaked at number 9, on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in the United States. After he was shot, Lennon was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital on 9th Avenue, Manhattan. Roosevelt and Manhattan both have nine letters. Lennon was shot in New York City on December 8, 1980, but the date in his hometown of Liverpool was already the 9th. Were they all random occurrences? Sure, possibly. But as Lennon got older, he became increasingly fascinated with numerology and was quite aware of how much the number nine played a role in his life. Number nine, Gloomy Sunday. Gloomy Sunday, also known as the Hungarian Suicide Song, was a popular song composed by Hungarian pianist and composer Rezo Ceres. The song was published in 1933. In the original lyrics, the song had to do with the world ending and the sadness brought on by war. A poet named Laszlo decided to write his own lyrics, which ended up becoming more popular, so much so that the original lyrics were almost completely forgotten. In Laszlo's version, he wrote of a person whose lover had just died, and now they wanted to commit suicide to join them. The first recording of the song was done in Hungarian by Paul Kalmar in 1935. The following year was recorded in English by Hal Kemp. Gloomy Sunday would be recorded numerous times over the next few years. But it wasn't until Billie Holiday's 1941 version was released that it became known more widely throughout the English-speaking world. When Ceres first wrote the piece during the Great Depression, he had trouble finding a publisher. Publishers just weren't sure that the world needed to be any sadder than it already was. One publisher was quoted as saying, It's not that the song is sad. There's a sort of terrible, compelling despair about it. 
I don't think it would do anyone any good to hear a song like that. I'll spare you my singing and read you some of the lyrics. Gloomy is Sunday. My hours are slumberless. Dearest the shadows I live with are numberless. Little white flowers will never awaken you. Not where the black coach of sorrow has taken you. Angels have no thought of ever returning you. Would they be angry if I thought of joining you? Certainly not a peppy number, but a song like this has its place in the world too. The legend of the curse that surrounds the song began in the later 1930s, when newspapers in both Hungary and the United States started reporting that suicides were on the rise due to the song. One news outlet claimed that as many as 100 people had taken their lives after hearing the song. In hindsight, the uptick in suicides around that time could more reasonably be blamed on things like famine, poverty, and the Great Depression. Another thing to think about is that sad people sometimes listen to sad music. You can leave me and my massive collection of Radiohead music out of this. Thank you very much. The police may have found a scratched-up Gloomy Sunday album still playing when they arrived at the scene of a suicide, but that doesn't mean the song made them do it. Regardless of what we know now, Hungarian radio stations reportedly began banning the song from being played. The most notable case of the song being banned came from the BBC. They would not play Billie Holiday's version because they felt it would hurt wartime morale. Here's a sample of the song, as done by Billie Holiday. curse came back around to rear its ugly head on January 11th of 1968, when Ceres, the original composer, took his own life. Tons of big-name artists have felt comfortable enough to release Gloomy Sunday to their fan base, unconcerned with any effect it may have on them. Artie Shaw, Mel Torme, Lou Rawls, Ray Charles, Elvis Costello, Sinead O'Connor, Sarah McLaughlin, and Bjork all have their own versions, as do a hundred other artists over the years. Whether the song is cursed or not, we may never know. Just to be safe, I stopped listening halfway through. If it's anything like the cursed VHS movie from The Ring, it might be too late. Number 8. Dead Man's Curve Surf music spawned in Southern California and became popular nationwide in the early 1960s. The sport of surfing was seeing an uptick in popularity and it needed a soundtrack. Bands like the Beach Boys, Dick Dale and his Deltones, the Ventures, and the Surfaris were happy to provide that. Even Midwestern bands, like the Trashmen from Minnesota, got into the mix with their hit Surf and Bird. Jan and Dean were amongst the pioneers of the California sound. Jan Barry and Dean Torrance were in their early 20s when they broke onto the scene. The duo had numerous songs reach the top 10. 
including 1963's Surf City and The Little Old Lady from Pasadena in 1964. Jan and Dean met at Emerson Junior High School in Westwood, Los Angeles, and both attended nearby University High School as part of the class of 1958. In the locker room after practice, the two would harmonize and sing with other friends, including future actor James Brolin. Another one of their big hits was a song called Dead Man's Curve. The song was produced by Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and told the tale of a guy out for a leisurely drive in his Corvette when a man in a Jaguar pulls up next to him and challenges him to a race. Dead Man's Curve is considered one of the standouts in the nearly 20-year trend of teenage tragedy songs. These songs were also known as tearjerkers, death discs, or splatter platters, as radio disc jockeys like to call them. Other songs in the genre included Wayne Cochran's Last Kiss, Teen Angel, and the Shangri-La's Leader of the Pack. In the final verse of Dead Man's Curve, we hear the singer relating his last memories of the race to a doctor. Well, the last thing I remember, Doc, I started to swerve, and then I saw the jag slide into the curve. I know I'll never forget that horrible sight. I guess I found out for myself that everyone was right. You won't come back from Dead Man's Curve. The last line is met with sound effects of screeching tires and crashing. 28 months after the release of the hit song, Jan Barry of Jan and Dean found himself living through that last verse. As he flew down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, he lost control of his stingray and slammed his car into a parked truck on North Whittier Drive, just blocks from the actual dead man's curve. His stingray was left an unrecognizable mess, and Barry's injuries were so severe that originally paramedics thought he was dead. After checking his vitals, they located a weak pulse. The crash that happened 54 years ago last month left Jan Barry brain damaged and severely handicapped for the rest of his life. Jan Barry underwent numerous brain operations and spent six weeks in a coma. When he awoke, he was severely brain damaged, unable to speak, and was nearly completely paralyzed on his right side. Despite his handicaps, Barry was working on new material as soon as the following year and continued working on music into the late 1990s. Jan Barry passed away in 2004 after suffering a seizure, eight days before his 63rd birthday. In the years since the crash, the city of Beverly Hills has added safety measures to Dead Man's Curve, making it safer for motorists. The place where the crash occurred is now a park. Number 7. The Curse of the Ninth The Curse of the Ninth is a superstition within the world of classical music. It's believed that when a composer reaches their Ninth Symphony, that death is on the horizon. According to believers, that person was destined to die while writing the ninth, after its completion, or before finishing their tenth. The origin of the superstition seems to begin with Gustav Mahler, who lived from 1860 to 1911. Mahler was aware that both Ludwig von Beethoven and Franz Schubert had died either before writing or while writing their tenth symphony. Upon completing his eighth symphony, he attempted to outwit the curse by writing something titled Das Lied van der Erde. It was structurally a symphony, but he hid it under a different name. Feeling safe, he then wrote his ninth symphony and thought he'd beaten the curse. He later died before completing his tenth symphony. While some composers started to believe in the curse, many forged ahead, continuing on well past their ninth and tenth symphonies. The list of composers to fall victim to the curse grew, however. Dvorak, Vaughn Williams, 
and Bruckner all died within the curse's window. Schnitke had not completed his Ninth Symphony when it was first performed. Less than two months later, he was dead. Alexander Glazunov was working on his Ninth Symphony in 1910 when he apparently stopped due to his fear of the curse. Smart move. He went on to live another 26 years. Even in more recent times, the curse still looms overhead. English composer Malcolm Arnold flat out refused to work on a Tenth Symphony. American composer Roger Sessions saw a successful career over his 88 years on Earth. He also never wrote more than nine. Number six, The Devil's Trill Sonata. Sticking with classical music, the violin sonata in G minor, known as the Devil's Trill Sonata, is a work for solo violin written by Giuseppe Tartini. Tartini lived from 1692 to 1770, and the piece's difficulty and beauty makes it his best-known work. It's the way Tartini acquired the idea for the piece that lands it on this list. According to French astronomer Jérôme Lalande, his friend Tartini told him this story. One night in the year 1713, I dreamed I had made a pact with the devil for my soul. Everything went as I wished. My new servant anticipated my every desire. Among other things, I gave him my violin to see if he could play. How great was my astonishment on hearing a sonata so wonderful and so beautiful played with such great art and intelligence as I had never even conceived in my boldest flights of fantasy. I felt enraptured, transported, enchanted. My breath failed me, and I awoke. I immediately grasped my violin in order to retain, in part at least, the impression of my dream. In vain, the music which I, at this time, composed is indeed the best that I ever wrote, and I still call it the devil's trill. But the difference between it and that which so moved me is so great that I would have destroyed my instrument and have said farewell to music forever if it had been possible for me to live without the enjoyment it affords me. The music was not published until nearly 30 years after his death. He claimed to have created it in 1713, but scholars believed it might not have been composed until the 1740s due to its style. Because the song may have been acquired from the devil, many composers throughout history believe the song to be cursed and won't play it even on their worst enemy's violin. Here's a sample for you. So there you have the first half of the top 10 curses, or what many perceive as curses, in the music world. Since we ended on a couple of cursed classical music pieces, I'll throw in a bonus one that just missed the top 10. The Piano Sonata No. 6 by Alexander Scriabin was composed in 1911. Scriabin reportedly never played the sonata in public because he feared its darkness. Wikipedia tells us that the mood of the piece is marked mysteriox by the composer. But most striking are the sudden moments of horror that interrupt its dreamlike atmosphere. Explicitly marked L'Epouvante Surgit, which means Surge of Terror, by Scriabin. The final passages are colorful and languid, but darker forces are released at the end. According to Scriabin's biographer, the sixth sonata is a nether star. Its dark and evil aspect embraces horror, terror, and the omnipresent unknown. Scriabin called the sixes sweet and harsh harmonies 
nightmarish, fuliginous, murky, dark and hidden, unclean, and mischievous. When he played excerpts for friends, he would stare off into the distance away from the piano, as if watching effluvium rise from the floor and walls around him. He seemed frightened and sometimes shuddered. After the completion of Sonata No. 6, Scriabin immediately got to work on his seventh sonata, which became his favorite work of all time. Thank you to all of the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. It really helps. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.